Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbird styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Superlight Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And, because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. I've been dead for more than three years. I remember it did not impress me as being at all strange that my wife, who was dead, should be speaking to me up there in the Labrador wilderness. It seemed to me perfectly natural that she should be looking after my comfort, even as she had done in life. I arose and broke the bows. I am not a spiritist. I have never taken any stock in the theory that the spirits of the dead are able to communicate with the living. So far as I have thought about them at all, it has been my opinion that spiritists are either fools or frauds. But I am endeavoring to give a faithful account of my feelings and sensations at the time of which I am writing, and the incident of the voice cannot be ignored. Perhaps it was all a delusion, an hallucination, if you will, due to the gradual breaking down of my body and mind. As to that, the reader can form his own conclusions. Certain it is that from this time on, when I needed help and encouragement the most, I felt a vague assurance that my wife was by my side, and I verily believe that if it had not been for this, hallucination, delusion, actuality, reality, or whatever it may have been, I should now be in a land where the truth about these things is probably known for certain. At times I even thought I saw my wife, and often, often throughout those terrible days her voice came to me, kindly and low and encouraging. When I felt I really could plod no farther through the snow, her voice would tell me not to lose heart, but to do my best, and all would be right in the end. And when, wearied beyond measure at night, I would fall into a heavy sleep and my fire would burn low, a hand on my shoulder would arouse me, and her voice would tell me to get up and throw on more wood. Now and again I fancied I heard the voice of my mother, who died when I was a boy, also encouraging and reassuring me. Indescribably comforting were those voices, whatever their origin may have been. They soothed me and brought balm for my loneliness. In the wilderness and amid the falling snow, those that loved me were ministering unto me and keeping me from harm. At least, so it seemed to me. And now, as I think of those dear voices, and feel once more that loving touch on my shoulder, there comes back to me that verse from the psalm George read at our parting. For he shall give his angels charge over thee, to keep thee in all thy ways. It is all like a half-dream to me now. I know that after Saturday night, October 24th, 
when I bivouacked within a stone's throw of Hubbard's tent, I lost all count of the days and soon could not recall even the month. I traveled on and on, always down the valley. Sometimes I fancied I heard men shouting, and I would reply. But the men did not come, and I would say to myself over and over again, Man proposes, God disposes. It is His will, and best for all. The flour mold nauseated me to such an extent that for a day at a time I could not force myself to eat it. The snow clogged in all that was left of my cowhide moccasins, larrigans, and I took them off and fastened them to my belt, walking thereafter in my stocking feet. I wore two pairs of woolen socks, but holes already were beginning to appear in the toes and heels. The bushes tore away the legs of my trousers completely, and my drawers, which thus became the sole protection of my legs from the middle of my thighs down, had big holes in them. Every night I cut a piece of leather for my moccasin uppers and boiled it in my cup until morning, when I would eat it and drink the water. I found afterward, carefully preserved in my matchbox, one of the brass eyelets from the moccasins. Probably I put it away thinking I might have to eat even that. I knew there was something the matter with my feet. They complained to me every night. They seemed to me like individuals that were dependent upon me, and they told me it was my duty to care for them. But I gave no heed to their complaints. I had enough to do to take care for myself. My feet must look out for themselves. Why should I worry about them? And still it snowed, night and day, sometimes gently, sometimes blindingly, but always it snowed. Once while plodding along the side of a rocky hill, I staggered over the edge of a shelving rock and fell several feet into a snowdrift. I was uninjured, but extricating myself was desperately hard work, and it was very pleasant and soft in the snow, and I was so tired and sleepy. Why not give it up and go to sleep? But she was with me, and she whispered, Struggle on, and all will be well. And reluctantly I dragged my poor old body out. There were times when the feeling was so strong upon me that I had been alone and wandering on forever, and that, like the wandering Jew, I must go on forever. At other times I fancied I was dead, and that the snow-covered wilderness was another world. Instinctively I built my fire at night under the stump of a fallen tree, if I could find one, for the rotten wood would smolder until morning, and a supply of other wood was very hard to get. One evening I remember crossing the river, which had now gone into its long winter sleep tucked away under a blanket of ice and snow, and building a fire under a rotten stump on the south side behind a bank near the shore. I felt that I must be well down the valley. My supply of wood was miserably small, but I had worked hard all day and could not gather any more. I fell down by the fire and struggled against sleep. She told me I must not sleep. When I dozed, her hand on my shoulder would arouse me. Thus the night passed. At dawn I realized in a vague sort of way that the clouds had at last broken away. The weather was clear and biting cold. Before me was the river. It had been a raging torrent when I first saw it. Now it lay quiet and still under its heavy winter blanket. At my back 
the low bank with its stunted spruce trees hid the ridge of barren, rocky hills and knolls that lay beyond. A few embers of the rotten stump were smoldering, sending skyward, with each pitiful gust of the east wind, a fugitive curl of smoke. A few yards away lay a dead tree, with its branches close to the snow. If I could break some of those branches off and get them back to my smoldering stump, I might fan the embers into a blaze, get some heat, and melt snow in my cup for a hot drink. Not that I craved the drink or anything else, but it perhaps would give me strength to go on just a little farther. I pulled my piece of ragged blanket over my shoulders and struggled to my feet. It was no use. I swayed dizzily about, took a few steps forward, and fell. I crawled slowly back to the smoldering stump and tried to think. I felt no pain. I was just weary to the last degree. Should I not now be justified in surrendering to the overpowering desire to sleep? Perhaps, I argued, it would strengthen me. I could no longer walk. Why not sleep? But still I was told that I must not. Was Hubbard still waiting and watching for me to come back? Somewhere in that still wilderness of snow was he waiting and watching and hoping. Perhaps he was dead and at rest. Poor Hubbard! Why did not the men come to look for us, the trappers that George was to send? Had they come and missed me and gone away again? Or was George, brave fellow, lying dead on the trail somewhere below? How long had I been wandering, anyway? My sisters in faraway New York were they hoping and praying to hear from me? Perhaps they never would. There was a certain grave in the little cemetery on the banks of the dear old Hudson. It had been arranged that I should lie beside that grave when I went to sleep forever. Would they find my bones and take them back? How enthusiastic Hubbard had been for this expedition! It was going to make his reputation, he thought. Well, well, man proposes, God disposes. It was his will, and best for all. I found myself dozing, and with an effort to recover myself sat up straight. The sun was making its way above the horizon. I looked at it and hoped that its warming rays would give me strength to do my duty, my duty to live as long as I could. Anyway, the storms had passed. The storms had passed. I dozed again. It may have been that I was entering upon my final sleep, but gradually I became hazily conscious of an unusual sound. Was it a shout? I was aroused. I made a great effort and got on my feet. I listened. There it was again. It was a shout. I felt sure it was a shout. With every bit of energy at my command, I sent up an answering, Hello! All was silent. I began to fear that again I had been deceived. Then, over the bank above me, came four swarthy men on snowshoes, with big packs on their backs. End of chapter 18. Recording by Tom Weiss. TomsAudiobooks.com.